Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator. Joining me today are Matthew Yates, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at 7IM, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle. Good morning to you both. Matthew, as a an asset allocator, how do you weigh up the various big picture macro topics, uh, which are um, very much, uh, very much in vogue at the moment when putting portfolios together? Uh, with significant difficulty this year, um, no. Um, so, so the way we tend to try and think about the world, um, specifically the big picture questions when we're constructing multi-asset portfolios, is via splitting it into two main big decisions that we make, which is how much equity risk to take, how much beta to take in portfolios, and how much duration risk to take in portfolios. And the way that we try to synthesize all of the data that's out there in the world is by using dashboards, essentially. So um, by that, we have various dashboards that are looking at economic data that are coming out, they're looking at the movement of of, of various underlying markets um, and asset prices in general. And that gives us an initial lens through which to, to view the world, um, which we then overlay from time to time judgment on top of. So we are big believers in the, the discipline and the rigor that comes uh, with quantitative models of, of models that are, you know, in many ways, um, unhuman. Uh, but then we do think that at extremes, at, uh, at market kind of junctures, periods like, you know, March 2020, then an overlay of judgment is also important. So I think the, the, the way that we try to frame this is JQD, what we call JQD, so judgment with quantitative discipline, looking at the world through quant dashboards, but also realising there's worlds where they don't necessarily tell the full pitch and we need to overlay that level of judgment. Thank you. Uh, David Baxter, uh, what have you been uh, hearing from the um, people you talk to on those big, big questions? It's interesting how much more macro elements have uh, have kind of become an important factor in running portfolios and especially kind of uh, inflation and that Matthew I was interested in your kind of point on the on the dashboards because I, I suppose quantitative approaches don't always work out I was interested how has the dashboard approach kind of coped with say if we think like a year ago there was still I imagine still the lingering kind of inflation is transitory argument. And then a lot of people and a lot of fund managers have been sort of caught off guard by that. Yeah. So um, I think if I, if, if I think about the evolution of the risk taking that we've had um, in, in the last year or so, we, 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 we finished last year marginally overweight equities and then moved relatively neutral um, at the start of the year. And it's, it's very recently about two, three weeks ago that we actually moved underweight equities uh, for what was the first time in, you know, several years. Um, and the key driver for that, for all the noise around inflation, for all the the, the noise around, you know, the, the energy specific issues that we're facing in Europe at the moment, the key driver really was what we were seeing in the manufacturing data. Uh, and what we think is that we're at the, 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 the turning point really, and, and you're already seeing it in, in the manufacturing PMIs, of of a deterioration in the underlying manufacturing backdrop. That should not be surprising to people. 
And and one of the reasons for that is because manufacturing had such a boon through the post-COVID period. Something like 13 years worth of good spending happened in two years. You know, we probably all saw it on our own streets, you know, piles and piles of Amazon and ASOS deliveries. Um, certainly it was a problem in my household, that's for sure. Um, but what that meant is that you had this big boost to the manufacturing sector and that drove many of the companies that were just frankly or producing goods. Now that picture is changing slightly and you have a reorientation of spending from goods to services, that just change in the tide, if you like, causes a disruption that we think is going to lead to the manufacturing, uh, a manufacturing downturn that is unlikely to bottom out for at least the next six months or so. So at the margin, that's been the big swing factors on moving us underweight equities and, and, and used really the rally that we saw from uh, June, July in broad equity markets to take that little bit of extra risk off the table. We thought economic data had got worse, but actually equity markets had, had moved some against that view. Um, and so really, the inflation story is a big one for bonds, but at least in equities, it's really the manufacturing cycle that's led us to move underweight equities. You seem to have a big underweight to US equity funds in the balanced portfolio that you that you run. Is this a comment on the, the quality of the funds available or on the US outlook more broadly? I think more the latter. Um, certainly, one of the big themes that we have had in portfolios for some time is 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 a lean against the broad U.S. equity market. I think if if we look globally, that was the area where we saw, in our view, the most concentration of market performance, and indeed that is that concentration that's really been unwinding uh, in the you know the the, the 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 outlook for bonds that we've seen this year. So I think it was a really a deliberate let's call it top-down call. Um, and, you know, obviously the US equity market is one which is, you know, famed for being challenging to find underlying kind of robust equity active managers. Uh, and so, you know, always for us uh, that the US equity market has tended to be a more passive first region. Uh, but I think it was largely a valuation-led view on the US equity market, which is, you're right, led us to almost holding, you know, close to no benchmark US equity by the time we started this year. Clearly, that's played out well. That hurt when you have that period of concentration that just kept running through 2021. But if, if there's anything we tend to think of ourselves as identity-wise, it's we're not scared of being like unfashionable. Uh, and it is, you know, that unfashionable view to hold, you know, close to zero in US equities, which has meant that the portfolios have been able to hold up relatively robustly this year are there any um any kind of parts of the equity space that you actually do still like is there anywhere that's um perhaps showing some rare promise yeah so so within um let's keep it in in u.s equities but also this is more of a global theme so um healthcare companies is is a sector that we specifically mm -hmm. like uh you know there's several reasons for this if, if, if you look at the demographics of just the globe frankly you have an aging population you know, it costs something like three times as much to care for an over 65-year-old as it does an under 65-year-old. Not just that, but you've also got emerging markets that are in many ways emerging or have emerged. And healthcare too tends to be a good that as income improves, you tend to spend more on that as a function um, of, of, of your overall kind of spending. So there's these two structural drivers. But at the same time, healthcare companies tend to have this feature of them, which is particularly attractive. And that is that 
their spending or, or kind of income that uh, healthcare companies generate tends to be stable through time. You know, it's quite intuitive, really, that there's there's a lack of cyclicality to healthcare companies' earnings, pretty much because it, it's it's something that's inelastic to broader growth uh, demand. So that stability, we think, is really worth paying for. But yet, healthcare companies have not necessarily been expensive by historical standards for much of the last two, three, four years. And that's before you even think about kind of the, the backdrop of COVID. So yeah, healthcare companies specifically have been an area that we've been overweight in portfolios for, for for the last three, four years now. Thank you for that, Matthew. You've elaborated very well on your, on the equity side of your book. Uh, on the bond side, is there any role at all for government bonds or, or are they, uh, they in the doghouse with you? <laughs> um, well, I, I, I think we saw flashes of what, you know, the, the bond sell-off that you've seen this year um, in March 2020. Um, and so for us, we entered this year very much underweight bonds. Uh, and the main reason for that was because you saw yields that had got to such a level that even if you saw a macro shock, forget the inflation side of things, even if you saw a macro shock, what was surprising about March 2020? It was that bonds and equities were selling off at the same time. And that was a reminder, you know, that proof point that people were looking for for so long going into that period, that bonds may not quite provide the same diversification going forward. Then fast forward to this year and you had a very different type of uh, shock, let's call it to, to border equity markets. And that was one of uh, an inflationary lead shock. And that, you know, shouldn't have been surprising. That's been a very, very difficult world for bond markets. So we entered the year very underweight bonds. But actually, and quite interestingly, potentially, it's, it's the first time I can remember being positioned like this for, again, you know, several years, is that we move to neutral bonds um, as of that same point in June, July, when we went slightly underweight on equities. And the reasons for that are, are several fold. It's that although we think there's likely to continue to be volatility in bond markets, you are at least optically being paid slightly more for that nowadays. And so, you know, we've clearly run a long way from the, you know, close to 1% yields that we saw in the UK at the start of the year. So, so that's, that's one element. As those yields go up, though, in bond markets, what it also means is that we think there's more of a symmetry, let's say, to, to, to where bond markets can go. Just frankly, it's easier for bond yields to fall a percent and provide that diversification for portfolios when they're already at 3% rather than when they're at 1% and they have to go through that zero bound. So that's one thing to say. But, but, but the second is that uh, for some time, even though we're neutral on bonds, we're taking a good part of our or looking for a good part of our diversification properties from uh, market neutral alternative strategies. So for us in a balanced portfolio, that represents about 20 percent of the of the portfolio. And we think although bonds are more attractive, solely relying on them for diversification properties and not just being challenging year to date, but could be going forward. And so being somewhat diversified, looking for a range of market neutral strategies that can protect portfolios has been something that we've spent a lot of time on. It's interesting um, you mentioned that market neutral kind of funds. Um, so I suppose with those and with, yeah, with some of those kind of alternative funds, you're taking very idiosyncratic risks. And if, if you turn to, I think it was around 2019, you had a couple of the big market neutral funds kind of just went the wrong way a little bit and um, kind of had some really horrendous performance. I mean, do you, is there a way you can kind of offset those risks with the other things you're doing in the portfolio? Or is that kind of a something that you're not so concerned about? 
Yeah, so um, especially in the equity space, right, 2019 saw um, some of the uh, equity long short funds that were very high profile uh, perform mm. quite poorly. Um, I think there's a couple of things that w- we have to bear in mind there. One is that there, we don't think there is a single panacea alternative strategy that you can go and buy that's going to, you know, in all market conditions, defend uh, portfolios and always make money because, you know, that's just not the way that markets are uh, constructed. You are, like you say, you're taking some different risks. So a different way of saying idiosyncratic risk is you're saying taking a different risk. Because you are generating returns, you have to take some risk with your portfolio. But the way that we try to get around that is by rather than just picking a single market neutral strategy or single market neutral style, we try to blend several of those sorts of funds uh, together to deliver returns. And and here's a good example of that, right? So um, multi-asset trend following um, has been a strategy that's very much come uh, in vogue in, in, in kind of the last year or so, you know, frankly, just because it's performed well. We held multi-asset trend followers who are basically looking across different markets, commodities, FX markets, equity markets, bond markets, and they just purely quantitatively try to say, is the market trending up or down? Buy markets that are trending up, sell or go short markets that are trending down. That strategy didn't actually work for the last, you know, several years very well at all until you got to this year. Markets were pretty range-bound. Um, even if it looked like equity markets were always trending up, if you go in the FX markets or commodity markets, you tended to just have um, central banks keeping things in a relatively well-controlled range. Clearly, this year, that's changed. But if you didn't own trend following, you know, if, if, if at the end of last year, you say, why would you own a trend follower? It's because there is a world where that underlying strategy does well. So I think it's about recognising that these strategies can fail or they can have several years where they're not likely to work as well as you would expect in portfolios. But actually, as long as you're sizing them correctly in a portfolio as a whole, as long as you've got a variety of different strategies, you should be able to deliver a much more stable line, if, if you know performance line, frankly, of, of, a, of a basket of alternatives. And we think that's the right approach, as is focusing on liquidity, as is focusing on cost, which is kind of a constant of any investment market. But in alternatives, you see so many things that aren't very liquid, aren't very low cost and become very crowded. So that, again, I said the the phrase anti-fashion earlier. We were prepared to be anti-fashion on things like trend following this year. And, you know, that's a strategy broadly that's up, you know, something like 25% year to date. So providing diversification when you need it most, but you do need to be willing in many of these strategies to hold them for multiple years and then not necessarily work quite as well. And within the broader alternative space, uh, do you find things such as infrastructure, um, music royalties, um, medical centres, those sort of alternative uh, products that have popped up really as a result or in conjunction with interest rates being being very low. Are they interesting to you as well or is is it very much a case of uh, we have to see what how, how they do through a full cycle? Yeah, so so I think um, some of those strategies, I, I wouldn't put them in the same market neutral category. So what we're looking for are strategies that are generally earning their return streams somewhat independent of broader macro factors. Uh, and certainly if you're invested in economic infrastructure, for instance, um, that has an underlying equity risk type profile to it. You know, the demand for your port or your, you know, whatever it may be is going to be somewhat dependent on the broader economic picture. There are a raft of other infrastructure, let's call them like real assets in the broader sense of the word, mm-hmm. um, strategies that, that, that 
are out there. We think they have something of a place in portfolios. So something like 2 or 3% of our portfolios will be invested in the real asset space broadly. But I think they're a good example of strategies that can also come under their own, um, let's call them headwinds. Um, and, and one of the things we were quite wary of over the last several years was this you know, preponderance of of. Uh, closed-ended investment trust vehicles that optically have a high yield. Uh, but underlying that, that comes as well with their own risks, right? And uh, catastrophe bonds are a good example, right? Uh, catastrophe bonds uh, back through kind of the, the, the floods, et cetera, that we had in Florida several years ago, or aircraft leasing companies, you know, that air, leased aircraft and then found that during the COVID lockdown that suddenly those aircrafts were, were, not, were not necessarily a credit come good. So mm-hmm. um, one of our issues with those that areas that they can often be relatively illiquid. The risks can often be quite concentrated. So there are some interesting opportunities from time to time, but we think that for broader adoption, we prefer those more market neutral strategies that tend to be a bit cheaper, tend to be a bit more liquid for investors, I think. Thank you for that, Matthew Yates, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at 7IM. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this time. And thank you to David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle as well. And thanks to all of you for listening. Do remember to tune in to the next edition of the Asset Allocator podcast.